right, Genesis chapter 8, picking it up in verse 20. And Noah built an ark, excuse me, and Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9, the first 17 verses. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hands are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things." But flesh with the life thereof, which is in the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely there your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And God spake unto Noah and his sons with him, saying, <clears throat> And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual, perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the everlasting covenant of which we are the beneficiaries of. We pray thee, Lord, now that you will pour out thy spirit, compass about us that we might understand the covenant, that Christ himself is the covenant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as you can see here in my prayer, I want us to appreciate and understand that Christ is the covenant. God has set forth this um, wonderful picture of salvation for us through the ark, through the flood, and we have talked about it in the past with the ark as a type of Christ in the context of what is set before us in Romans chapter 6, that we were baptized into his death, his burial, and his resurrection, just as the animals and Noah and his family went into the ark and therefore um, went through and um, um, survived is not the word I want, I want to use, but they went through the judgment of God completely unscathed. God preserved them and delivered them whole into the uh, new world. And so they all represent a type of the Christian who is regenerated. They've gone from the old world to the new world, from the old man to the new man, by virtue of what Christ has set before us here. So now after the flood, the God is going to set before them a token of the covenant that when he looks upon it, he would remember the everlasting uh, covenant. So this morning, I want to cover a couple of things. The first thing I want to talk about is just judgment in general and how it applies to the church. I mean, we certainly see how it applies in the world where God destroyed every living thing except for Noah and his family. And then I want to talk about the covenant. I Just uh, setting up the... Um, the uh, rainbow and look at that in just in a historical context about the order that things uh, appear here in Genesis chapter 8 and 9 and then 
I want us to see the redemptive um, properties and the redemptive teaching that the Lord sets before us here. So first, in terms of judgment and how it applies to the church, we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, that the Lord says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. For if it begins at us, what shall the end of them, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? Of God, So God sets before us here this idea that the church itself is to be judged, and we can appreciate what it says in 1 Corinthians about how the church, like Christ, is to be like unleavened bread. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, so if there's a problem in the church, the principle is that you would put that out of the church, lest the whole lump uh, be leavened. And you can see that in the early church, in Acts chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 11, it chronicles a situation where Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, lie to the Holy Ghost. People were uh, selling all of their things and then putting the money in common with the church, and yet these two uh, kept a portion back. And when they were questioned about it, uh, the best thing to have done would have been to tell the truth. Truth, No, I did not give you at all, but they lied. And so Peter says, uh, you know, you have lied to the Holy Ghost and you have lied unto God. And so what happened to them, of course, is they were both dropped down dead in front of Peter and carried out of the church. And verse 11 of Acts chapter 5 says, And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. So people certainly appreciated the, um, the nature of the church and that uh, as a representative of Christ, it was to represent his characteristics and attributes, and so it was to be holy. It was to be without leaven. So you would take that those things that were causing trouble in the church, and you would put them out of the church. And if you have heard me say, I think, a number of times that we come here together on Sundays, a body of believers, the body of Christ, to worship. And no more would you invite the um, Philistine into the temple of God in Jerusalem than you would bring non-believers to church. And I know that's contrary to what's done in churches all around the world, but bring non-believers to Bible studies. If they're interested in coming to church, why, by all means, I would let them. But you don't go out scouring the church, scouring the street and bringing in people that are not believers into the church, because if you'll do, you'll have nothing but a fully leavened loaf of bread, and you'll be like so many of the churches that are around here, where it is nothing more than a, as I have said in the past, a non-dues-paying or dues-optional social club. So we here, um, one of the things that we do in the church, contrary to what the Lord would have us to do, is we tend to judge people that are out of the church rather than judging people that are in the church. And I know I'm certainly guilty of that, and you'll recall a number of times at the fellowship meal where I've said some uh, critical remarks about our current governor and other legislative um, um, people in our government. We are not to judge these people here. So I'm sharing with you that I'm, I'm guilty of this as much as any other person is. So we as Christians, we have been judging people that are out in the world when God tells us that we should show them grace and mercy. Keep in mind, ever when you're dealing with people that are out of the church, is that we were once like them. We were once doing the bidding of Satan and blind to our own sin. That's how we once were. Um, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, the Lord says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And I think we can appreciate that that's a very difficult thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to do, but this is what the Lord says that we are to do. Now, we are at present not to judge them. That judgment belongs to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. There will come a time, and this is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to quote to you from chapter 5, and then he, chapter 6, he says, well, we will judge the world, and we will judge angels. But we should appreciate that Christ is the individual into whom all judgment has been committed, and so we judge when he judges in that context, because Christ is in us, and we are in him, so when he's judging, we're judging with him. That's a big picture there. So we will judge by virtue of our union with he who is the judge, us in him, and him in us. <clears throat> However, the Lord says, we are to judge matters within the church and put out those people that engage in unrepentant sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, he says, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without, that are without the church? 
do not ye judge them that are within. In other words, we don't judge people that are without the church. We judge people that are in the church. Verse 13. But to them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. In other words, judge the wicked person and put them out of the church. And the case here in particular is a, um, a man is uh, committing fornication with his stepmother. And the church is glorying in their mag, um, magnanimous attitude towards it. You know, aren't we wonderful people? We're willing to overlook the sin and let this continue in our midst. And the um, Lord says, no, no, no. Put that person out. And so in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 5, he says, To deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, his salvation is never in jeopardy. His salvation isn't a question here. It's assuming it's assumed that he is a Christian, but you're going to put him out. Satan's going to beat him up with the intent that they will repent from their sins and return to the church, um, a repentant sinner, which is what we all are, repentant sinners. And so um, that does prove to be the case. In 2 Corinthians, we learn that that individual is restored to the church, having engaged in godly repentance. So... The Lord does give us a protocol to follow, and you'll know that it, that's in Matthew chapter 18. It's a protocol that we are to follow when there's a problem with somebody um, sinning in the church. You follow that protocol, and you basically you put them out and teach and treat them like a heathen and a publican, which is what takes place here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with respect to that particular individual. Um, now, also with respect to rendering judgment within the church, I would say this is the most important person to judge would be your elder, your pastor, and your deacons. You should have your eyes fixed on them and watch what they do. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 20, it says, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. In other words, not just one person saying, I think this guy's doing this or that or the other thing, but it says, but before two or three witnesses, them that sin, rebuke before all that others also may fear. So the, um, the rebuke of the pastor is to be public in front of the church that all may fear. Now, the ways and I say that the pastor and the elders and the deacons, the leadership of the church, um, one should be ready to apply this is because they can sink a church and take it off the rails faster than anybody else in the church can. You see that time and time again in the Old Testament when you see a king goes south and takes the entire nation with them and God then comes and he judges the nation. Many people suffer for it. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but three out of the last four churches I've been in, the pastor has been lying to the congregation and nobody has done a thing about it. In the last church I was in, I started with four men, one dropped out immediately, and the other three men went with me all the way up until the time when it was time to go talk to the pastor. And all three of them said together, boy, we sure agree with everything that you've said. We think you need to go talk to the pastor by yourself. And I said, I've been doing it for two or three years, and I'm getting nowhere. This Bible says we take two or three. So they wouldn't go with me. Nothing happened, and I departed the church. So, again... What the Lord tells us to do here is actually the opposite of what people are doing. We are judging people without the church, not people within. And he says, no, do it the other way around. Judge people that are within the church. He'll take care of what's going on outside of the church. So we are to show grace to those who are without the church and to judge those that are within. If we would do that, if we would apply what God tells us to apply, the church would not be in the condition that it is today. It would not be a place where men are... Um, express some sense of misplaced self-righteousness and magnanimity, but rather a place of spiritual life and vitality. So that's enough on judgment. I want to move now and talk about um, the redemptive things that are set before us here in Genesis chapter 8 and chapter 9. So in a superficial sense, in a historical sense, we can appreciate the Lord tells us here that seed time and harvest, hot and cold, are to remain as the long as the earth Remains. We've talked about this in the past, but this would completely undermines the entire global warming lie. What we see in the weather uh, is just other normative cycles that God has ordained. God is going to continue to provide for all of his living creatures throughout the entire globe until such time as time is no more. 
So he will, um, he will manipulate and monitor and control the atmospheric conditions and all the things that are required to produce food for everybody that is on the planet here. All of the uh, natural resources, and I use that word in a, in a commonly understood way, but it's all of the resources that God has placed here. We have everything that we need to build buildings and to go out and be fruitful and multiply and to replenish the earth and to subdue it. All those resources are here, and he has placed them here because he is sovereign God. By him and through him were all things created, and by him and through him all things consist. Next we see uh, here is that God uh, blesses his children, and then he uh, appears to rewrite animal software so that animals now fear and dread men. Apparently they did not do that before the flood, but now they do it, and so we can expect that an animal will run for us, run from us. That is my expectation. <laughs> but sometimes uh, we see that fear, fight or flight thing. They don't always flight. <laughs> sometimes they want to fight, and so I keep my distance from animals with claws and teeth in case they decide that they want to fight. But nevertheless, there is a fear and a dread of animals, uh, of man among animals. Then we see that God gives an expansion of what man can eat. And we'll talk about that in a redemptive uh, context later. Then we see that he establishes capital punishment. And then we see that he establishes an everlasting covenant. And we should appreciate that he's not saying that people are not going to drown in floods anymore. It's just that it's not going to be global. And then God apparently changes some of the properties of light so that we now see a seven-colored rainbow appeared when the Lord brings the cloud. And God tells us that that will remind him of his everlasting covenant, and it should remind us of his everlasting covenant as well. So apparently he's done something to the properties of light so that it refracts and reflects off of a droplet and reflects back out. And interestingly enough, the angle between the light that enters the droplet and the light that exits the droplet is 42 degrees which is seven times six. In other words, God's perfection with the number of man. And it is through this everlasting covenant, of course, that we are redeemed to God. So I just throw that little scientific thing out here because God has ordained all things to his glory, including the property of refraction of light. So with respect to all of the things that we see in here, God affirms that he is sovereign over all things that by his hand all flesh was destroyed except for the eight people in the ark. By his hand, the orbit and rotation of the earth is established and it is sustained. By his hand, the earth is watered. And as it says in Hebrews 6, 7, it drinketh, the earth drinketh in the rain that cometh off upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed receiving blessings from God. There's an allusion here to what springs forth from the watering of God, and I want to talk about that a little bit later. I'll mention that a little bit later. Um, Colossians 1.17, and speaking of Christ, it says, He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. God is sovereign over all the affairs of men. He has orchestrated everything for His glory, including the flood and the rainbow, the properties of light being part of everything that glorifies Him. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we read in Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Not for my pleasure, not for my glory. They were created for his pleasure and his glory. Um, so we should ever keep that in mind. This includes the flood, includes the rainbow, or the bow in the clouds. It is only by God's grace and mercy that he stays his hand in judgment. For it says in the scriptures that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. God should destroy everybody, and he should have destroyed Noah too. But... Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what it does not say in the scripture here is that God will not destroy the earth. It's just that he's not going to destroy it as he has destroyed it. And if you read through here, it is implied that he will destroy it at some point in the future. And he affirms that in 2 Peter chapter 3, which we have read a number of times. 
we should appreciate that God says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that everybody knows something about God's eternal power and Godhead through the creation. Everybody knows something about God's power um, through the creation. In Romans 1, 20, it says, for the invisible things of him, that would be his characteristics and attributes, some of them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world through his creative efforts, through his creative accomplishments, are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. No man can say he's an atheist. Not in truth, he can't say that, nor is he an agnostic, because God has revealed certain things about himself. Most certainly, he's revealed his existence through the creation. So any man that says he's an agnostic or an atheist is really lying to themselves, and they're lying to you when they share that with you, because God says they know and they are without excuse. Now, in terms of the redemptive truths that are set before us here, we should appreciate the order in which God sets this in front of us. First, we see that a burnt offering is made, which is acceptable to God. Then we see that he gives a blessing to men. Now, then we are told that men can eat meat, and we should appreciate that when men can eat meat, we are then identified with the offering. Previous to this, man was not given meat to eat, that is to say, flesh to eat. It was exclusively used to or in the offerings to God. You can think of it as God's portion, while the fruits of the field were man's portion. Think about the offering Cain and Abel made. We appreciate that Abel's offering was a superior offering. Not only was the life in it, and so blood was shed as a substitutionary offering for sin, but he was offering to God God's portion, while Cain offered to God what was man's portion. Then the Lord tells us that life is in the blood. Offering an animal due to the sins of man clearly teaches that the wages of sin is death, and God is also teaching here the principle of substitution. He's teaching the principle of the substitutionary offering, both of which he taught to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. When God clothed Adam and Eve with an animal skin, an animal was slain, and he was teaching the principle of the wages of sin is death, and that um, a substitutionary offering was in view, particularly when he had told them about the head of the um, the seed of the woman would be um, would bruise the heel of the seed of the serpent, or the heel of the, the head of the serpent, excuse me. Next we see here, in the way things are presented, that man's life is particularly precious to God, for in the image of God made he man. So we understand that conformity to the image and likeness of um, God is the goal here as we go through the scriptures, but God says in particular that man is in the image of God, and therefore it's a particularly heinous sin to kill a man. To kill a man is to kill that which is in the likeness of God, and so it should be understood um, in an indirect sense is that man is trying to kill God. Now, consistent with these things here that I've just mentioned, the identification with the offering and that life is in the blood and that man's life is particularly precious to God, Jesus tells us that we are to eat his flesh and drink his blood. In John chapter 6, verse 53, the Lord says, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Now, <clears throat> ultimately, Jesus will be the substitutionary offering, and we identify ourselves with his offering by spiritually eating he who was laid in a manger, which is a feeding trough, and when he was born in Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. So God is teaching through the birth of Christ that, one, he's, he's what we are to eat. We to feed on Christ. That's why he had him laid in a manger, a feeding trough, and why he was born in Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. And he says of himself, that I am the manna which came from heaven. We are to feed upon him, and we are to eat him. So when he says in John 6.53 that if we don't eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have no part in him, He's talking about we have no part in the sacrifice which he would offer on our behalf. Now, we're only in Genesis chapter 9 here, so there are lots of things that we haven't 
yet seen because as you go through Scripture, you get, continuous, you get continuing revelation. God gives us more and more details where he shares things with us here. Um, we see that, and next, and I'm going to talk about that again in a minute also. We see in the next thing that takes play here, place here that the law is given, which we again understood that God subjected himself to the law when he manifested himself in flesh and allowed his blood to be shed for the sins of his people, owning our sins as though they were his own. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he took our sins upon himself, as, and he became guilty as though he had committed the sins himself. As I shared with you last week, God will not acquit the guilty. If you're guilty, you're going to pay for the sins, or Christ is going to pay on your behalf. He does not let the guilty go free. There's no justice in that, nor does he punish the innocent. He's not going to punish somebody who's innocent. So what took place on the cross, as I mentioned last week, from God's perspective, Jesus was guilty. Um, from our perspective, he was, he was innocent. But there is justice. And so, again, uh, citing an example that uh, people often use is that before the bar of justice, you have Jesus and you have yourself there, and we are guilty of sin, and Jesus is not. And so Jesus says, well, by golly, I will take Chuck's place uh, in prison. And uh, you say to yourself, well, where is justice served? An innocent person is going to jail, and a guilty person is being set free. There is no justice in that. There has to be an imputation of the sin to Christ, otherwise God would be punishing an innocent person. So, God punishes those who are guilty, and the innocent, of course, he does not punish. So we can appreciate the transference of the guilt with our sin to Christ. So God is just in all that he does. So, with respect to um, here, we should appreciate that as the God-man... Christ Jesus will require the blood of men that shed the blood of man because man is made in the image of God. So that is going to work both sides of the equation. Christ's blood will be shed, but he will shed the blood of those that shed his blood because they were guilty of murder. And so while we understand that in a literal context, we can also appreciate that God always teaches spiritual truths and those are at a much higher standard than the superficiality of, you know, only murderers um, go to um, have their blood shed. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord teaches, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. So the Lord is teaching us that when you hate somebody in your heart, you have murdered them in your heart. You have... Um, in a symbolic sense or in a parabolic sense, you have shed their blood, and so your blood will be shed by the Son of Man, by Christ himself. Jesus teaches his disciples in John chapter 7 and also John chapter 15 that the world hates him. He essentially is condemning everybody that's outside of Christ because the world hates him, and therefore the world has murdered him in their heart, and therefore their blood will be shed. And hence we cling to the verse that says in 1 John that... Um, we love him because he first loved us. And so we do not hate him. We love him, and so we're not guilty of murdering him in our heart. Um, now, after we get through this, then the next thing we see that a covenant is made and that a token is given to remind God of the covenant. So then a covenant is made after the law is given, and a token is given to remind God of the covenant. Now, I want to talk about the covenant. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, we read, And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. So the Lord is establishing a covenant here. A covenant is made, and it's rooted in judgment and God's satisfaction with judgment as evidenced by him accepting the offering that was made. It's described as a sweet savor unto the Lord. He has accepted the offering that is made. After the offering is made, we see that a blessing is given in verse 1 of um, Genesis chapter 9. So I ask you the question, who was it that made the covenant? Who made that covenant? Well, verse 9 tells us God spake. And God spake. Noah does not speak at all during this process. Only God spoke. 
Noah does not accept nor reject the covenant. Noah does not venture an opinion on the covenant. He's got nothing to say with, about it, and he's got nothing to do with it. He is simply a recipient or beneficiary of this covenant. The creatures don't speak. They simply are listening to what God is saying here. Now, we certainly ought to appreciate how this everlasting covenant uh, would be representative in many ways of the everlasting covenant that includes um, Christ. It was made before the foundation of the world, and we are recipients of that. The Lord teaches us that in um, Ephesians chapter 3 about how it precedes, excuse me, it's Ephesians chapter 1. I'll pick it up in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So we see in verse 1 there's a blessing given, and now we're going to see a covenant in Genesis chapter 9. And so we were blessed by God, and we have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. I want you to appreciate the union between these blessings that are set before us in Ephesians chapter 1 and the union we have with Christ. All of these blessings are in Christ. We're going to look at in Genesis chapter 9, and we're going to see a relationship between when God is speaking to Noah and who's included in that covenant. Verse 4, according as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So this tells us that we were chosen, this covenant was made before the foundation of the world, before any of us existed, before the world was spoken into existence. We had nothing to do with this covenant. We are just beneficiaries of it. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. So I'm going to stop there, but it continues along that vein about all of the things that we have in Christ. We were blessed, and so there's an uh, everlasting covenant between the Father and the Son, of which we are the beneficiaries, which was made in eternity past. Now, here in Genesis chapter 9, I want you to appreciate the relationship between the everlasting covenant he's making here and our salvation. Um, in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 9 and 10, he's going to link this uh, together for us. Isaiah 54, 9 and 10, he says, For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. Though the earth be removed, God will still honor his covenant, and he will still have kindness and mercy on us. Scripture says that his mercy endureth forever. It indeed does. It endures on us throughout all eternity. Um, so, but in any event, what I want us to pull from here is in verse 9, uh, is that in Genesis chapter 9, um, God makes a covenant there in Genesis chapter 9. He says in verse 12 that it's for perpetual generations, and he calls it an everlasting covenant in verse 16. So clearly there's something more here than just I'm not going to flood the earth while the earth remains. He's teaching us a spiritual truth here. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, he says, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation. So our salvation is rooted in the everlasting covenant, and that's a covenant that is made by God. We are simply the beneficiaries of it, and we had no input to it. We never agreed to it. We don't agree to it or disagree to it. We simply are the beneficiaries of it. Now, I want to contrast that with what is written in Exodus chapter 19. The Mosaic Law contains in it a conditional covenant. And this applies to national Israel. I think people fail to understand that God entered into a conditional covenant with them. He told them if they would abide by it, they would have blessings. If they did not abide by it, they would suffer curses and they would be taken off the land. That is a conditional covenant. It's got an upside 
and a downside to it. The everlasting covenant, from our perspective, only has an upside. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 8. Exodus 19, 5 through 8. Now, there's, there's one two-letter word which is extremely important, and it's the word I-F. If. If. That's a big word. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and, that's the other word, A-N-D, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation, if and then. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Verse 7. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. Verse 8. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. They've agreed to it. All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Now you roll forward to Genesis, excuse me, roll forward to Exodus chapter 24, and now it's going to present it to the people, and it's going to be ratified in blood. The um, Lord, excuse me, Moses is going to sprinkle the altar, he's going to sprinkle the book, and he's going to sprinkle the people with blood. In Exodus 24, I'm going to read only verses 3 and 7. In verse 3 it says, And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said will we do. All the words which the people said will we do. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. Three times they agreed to the conditional covenant. That's not what we are under. We are under an everlasting covenant. We are under, and from our perspective, an unconditional covenant. It was only conditional on that Christ would be obedient unto the Father, and he certainly was. Now, so who is covered in Genesis chapter 9? Who is covered in that covenant? It's made with Noah and his seed. Noah and his seed. So it's always Noah and. It's not just the seed, but it's Noah and. And we're going to see this take place when we get further on in Genesis chapter 9, when we're going to see the things that God says to Abraham. Some things in there, and when he's talking to Abraham, are simply to the seed. That's national Israel. If it's made to Abraham and his seed, it's the church. So that helps you break up what is said there. And the, the, um, the key to that comes from Galatians. Um, so, in verse 9 here, he says, with you and your seed after you. And so we appreciate what the Lord says in, in John chapter 17, verse 20, when he says, I pray not for you only, but also those that will believe on me through your word. So there's a spiritual um, parallel here. In verse 9 of Genesis, verse 10, in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 9, it says, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl of the cattle and of every beast of the earth with you from all that go out of the ark, go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. Verse 11, he's saying, between me and you and every living creature that is with you. And in verse 15, it's with you and, again, other creatures, with you and. So it always contains Noah as part of the covenant with Noah and something more. And so we should appreciate there's an allusion here to the everlasting covenant between the Father and the Son and the beneficiaries, which are the elect. In the context here, Noah, whose name means rest, is a type of Christ in whom we rest, and the covenant made with him covers those that are with him, just as does the everlasting covenant covers those and only those that are with Christ and all of those that are in the ark, which is another type of Christ. So do you see the relationship between what's set before us here and what the reality, the spiritual reality is for the Christian? This covenant includes those that are with Noah and those that came out of the ark, just like the everlasting covenant includes those that are with Christ and are in the ark of Christ. So 
As we move forward in this section of scriptures, we want to see Christ in this covenant because he is the everlasting covenant. So we're looking for Christ here. Now, the covenant is just not some ethereal thing. A token of the covenant is. A token points to something else. The token, the bow, is not the covenant. It reminds God of the covenant. It is something else. Just like circumcision of the flesh is not the covenant, it's a sign that points to something else. In Isaiah 42.6, Isaiah 42.6, we read, I, the Lord, have called thee, that would be Christ, in righteousness, and will hold thine hand and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. God the Father is going to give God the Son as the covenant. Christ himself is the covenant. Isaiah 49.8, Isaiah 49.8 says, Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, that would be Christ, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate thing. So we've got two verses here in Isaiah that clearly tell us that Christ is going to be given as a covenant. The Son of God is the covenant himself. So... We should appreciate that Christ himself, the person of Christ, is the covenant. He was given as a covenant when he died on the cross. Now, later when we get to Genesis chapter 15, and I have to run ahead so that we will appreciate what's in here, because again, line upon line, precept upon precept, as you get further into Scripture, these things become more evident. Later in Genesis chapter 15, we'll look a little bit closer at what it means to make, in the Hebrew, cut a covenant what it means to cut a covenant. So that'll shed more light on this when we get down there. But suffice it to say here that the covenant that is made here is teaching us about Christ and the everlasting covenant that covers the elect. The bow which appears in the cloud is a token or sign of the covenant. It is not the covenant, but it references the covenant. Verse 16 of Genesis chapter 9, Genesis 9, 16. And the bow shall be in the cloud... And I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. The bow is in the cloud. I will look upon the bow and remember the everlasting covenant. Look upon the bow, remember the everlasting covenant. So we should appreciate that two things are required for that bow to be seen. One, the clouds, water droplets in the cloud. And two, the sun. No sun. No bow. Got to have the sun present. Now, in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 9, it says, And it shall come to pass, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. So God is the one who set the bow in the cloud. Now, whereas the bow is in the cloud, it's put there by God, and is a token of the covenant, we might expect that the bow represents Christ. Look on Christ, remember the everlasting covenant. Look at the bow, remember the everlasting covenant. Now, as you would expect, there are a number of places in the Scripture that put Christ in a cloud. A number of places in Scripture that put Christ in a cloud. When the law is given on the second occasion, the first one, Moses broke the um, tables of stone there. When he goes up and receives it the second time, we read in Exodus 34... Verses 4 and 5, it says, And he hewed two tablets of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai, as the Lord hath commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Verse 5, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So the Lord here descends in Exodus 34. He descends in a cloud. Exodus, excuse me, Leviticus 16, this is the occasion where the, uh, Moses is giving, um, receiving instructions about when the priests approach the ark of God, which is in the holiest of holies, what they should expect. Leviticus 16, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had offered the Lord, when they offered before the Lord and died, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. 
for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. So the Lord is telling them again, he will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat, which you know covers the law. Now, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision which includes the glory of God um, in chapter 1. And when he tries to express the glory of the Lord, he expresses it in terms of the rainbow. In verses 26, 27, and 28 of Ezekiel chapter 1, he says here, And above the firmament that was over their heads, speaking of the beasts that he sees, was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward. I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about. Verse 28. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and heard the voice of one that spake. He's likening the glory unto the Lord like the rainbow. So again, we're associating the Lord with the rainbow. Now, here's an easy one, the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 5. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A bright cloud overshadows those on the Mount of Transfiguration, so the Lord again is in a cloud. When the Lord, having finished his ministry in the book of Acts chapter 1, when he departs from this earth and goes into glory, how does he depart? It says he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So there's a number of, resur- of um, places where the scripture tells us and associates Christ in the cloud. Now, helping this, us to tie all of this together, we read in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Revelation 10, 1, it says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Clearly, it's describing Christ, and it's describing him. He's clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow is upon his head. The Lord bringing it all together for us again in the last book of the Bible, which is where we would expect to have more revelation. In Revelation 14, 14, we see again, it says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud... One sat like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Does a sickle not look like a bow? Um, I say it does. So, now you may also recall when the Israelites were crossing the Red Sea, that Moses spake unto the people in chapter 14, verse 14, he says, The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. He's telling them that that as they go forth, the Lord is going to fight for them and essentially overcome Pharaoh's army. When they are crossing the Red Sea, which to them it is firm ground, they get halfway through it, or I should say the um, uh, Egyptian army gets a portion of the way through it, and they uh, note that their wheels start to fall off their chariots. And that's a very bad thing to happen when you're in the middle of the Red Sea. Verse 24 of Exodus 14, And it came to pass that in the morning, watch, the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels that they drove them heavily so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. The Egyptians figured out what Moses had told the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them, and he is fighting against them from the cloud. So again, we can appreciate from all these verses that the Lord sets before us that as the bow is in the cloud, so too is Christ, the Son of God, in the cloud. When God looks upon the bow and remembers his everlasting covenant, we should appreciate that he's teaching us that when the Lord looks upon Christ, who was given as the covenant, that he remembers his everlasting covenant of salvation that includes all of those that are with Christ. 
Of a truth, the scripture says, he maketh his son to rise upon the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. But when he sees the boat in the cloud, when he sees his son Jesus, he remembers his everlasting covenant, which includes those with Christ. If I can bring that to something we see every day. When you see a cross upon a church, I think of what Christ has done for me. I don't know what the rest of the world thinks of, but that does not apply to them as it applies to us. That covenant is with uh, the elect of God. So it means it's very meaningful to me to look upon that. To everybody else, it's nothing but judgment. But to me, it is judgment satisfied and mercy and truth um, and grace rendered unto me. So scripture tells us also that up in glory, there is a rainbow that surrounds the entire throne of Christ. As it is a circle, so it's obviously everlasting. The bow we see is only half of what appears up in glory. So as the scripture says, we only yet know in part. As we see in part, we know in part. So now we only see half of the picture. But up in glory, it completely surrounds the throne of God. In Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, After this I looked, and behold, the door was open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be thereafter, hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. Completely surrounding the throne is, the, is a rainbow of God, and it looks emerald. Why would it look emerald? Because he's right in the center of it, and what is the center color of a rainbow? But it's green or emerald. So we should appreciate that it is only through the rainbow, it is only through the everlasting covenant that you could approach the throne of God that is set before us here in Revelation chapter 4. It is only through the everlasting covenant, through the blood of Christ, that we can approach the throne of God's grace. So, as we close out here, when you see the rainbow, you should think of God's judgment satisfied. God's judgment is satisfied. The everlasting covenant is rooted in Christ, and his blood is shed, and the bow is indicative that God was satisfied, that judgment was rendered, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As the psalmist says, uh, we read earlier, uh, Psalm 85, 9 and 10, Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The bow is inseparable from the cloud, and it cannot be seen without the sun. Back in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, the Lord says that seed time and harvest shall not cease. He's speaking, of course, about the gospel going forth. In Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, he says, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. So seed time and harvest shall go forth until, until such time as the last of God's elect come into the ark of Christ. Amen.